Well, we entitled this Wisdom for the Weekend, and if you think about what you decide to do each weekend, uh, it's usually determined, I think, by a, a few factors. Let me just go through a few of them. At time. We will make judgments about what we will and what we will not do as we look at our diaries, as we see what space we have. And the question I guess we ask each weekend is, do we have the time for? And it can be a whole list of things following that. Secondly, relationships. What we do and who with is again at the forefront of our minds, isn't it? As we try to decide how we're going to spend all the hours of the weekend. What are we going Now, in two weeks' time, we're going to be looking at wisdom for relationships. So I'm going to park that one a little bit, if I, if I possibly can. The other major factor that I think we're often considering a weekend is money. Money. Do we have the money for? Or should we spend some money on? That is a big factor, I think, in each of our weekends. As you leave work on a Friday night, some of you, some of you will look at your bank accounts and see... What are the possible options for that Friday night? Is it going out with the friends who are going to a lavish restaurant or something like that? Or is it just at home watching the, the TV? You know, it, it's very much dependent on money. You may have the time. You may have the relationships. But what can we do? What would be the wise thing to do? Uh, of course, some of us will have few concerns with regard to wealth and money. We feel that we have... Uh, we're, we're very well provided for. But if we have no concerns, I therefore want to ask, should there be a concern for the fact that we have no concerns? Money is at the centre of our weekends because for many of us, it's the only time when perhaps we even get to spend any money because our weeks are so busy. Our work is so all-consuming that suddenly we go, oh, well, uh, I've done nothing apart from put my Oyster card down and spend and that's the only spending we do. That may be true. The weekend provides time for us either to enjoy money or worry about money. Now, if you've been reading through Proverbs, as I have been doing, and I guess some of you have, I'm sure you will have seen, you cannot get away from it. Money is a massive, massive issue within the whole of the book of Proverbs. And interestingly, the same is true as you go through the Gospels in Jesus' teaching. There's very few topics that he addresses more than money. Uh, for example, in Luke 12, when he says, watch out, when he's warning his listeners about their wealth and their possessions. Why, is the, why does he say watch out when it comes to, to money, to wealth, to possessions? The problem is, we just can't see that it ever is a problem. It's one of those stealthy issues, isn't it? And it's often legitimised in our culture. It's not like, for example, when the Bible speaks about sexual sin or you know, adultery and so on. Now, maybe we consider that wrong biblically. Uh, and it is obvious to all concerned. Therefore, we don't need to be warned out. Jesus doesn't say, watch out for adultery, does he? Watch out for kind of sexual sin. He doesn't say that. Why? Because no one who's ever involved in adultery would ever go, ooh, I didn't see that coming. No, it's obvious. The problem with wealth and possessions is that often we don't see that there is any problem. We don't understand why there would be a problem. So our struggle today, as I'm going to park the other two main factors of the weekend and really look at this one if I can. My struggle, I think, today, my struggle in my own heart this week has been, I need to be convincing that it is ever a problem. That I must watch out that money and wealth can be an issue. Because they have such power over us. 
Therefore, if you look on your sheets, I've got three points. They're fairly progressive, if you see what I mean. They, they link from one to the other. I want us to understand wisdom, to understand, firstly, the power of money. Then wisdom to essentially expose the effects of money on our lives. Wisdom to honour God with our money. Essentially, the remedy, the solution at the end. Let's go through uh, them as we, as we have time. Wisdom, firstly, to understand the power of money. Now, before I begin, I want us to be really clear, given recent political events. I am not here to push any particular economic or political kind of worldview. I am not a Corbynite, or am I not a Cameronite? But in preparing this, I think I've been struck very much on two fronts. Firstly, I've been incredibly struck about how positive Proverbs is with regard to wealth, with regard to, kind of, if you look at Proverbs 31, the entrepreneurial kind of you know, activity, wealth creation. So I'm firstly struck by how positive it is. Secondly, I've also been shocked by, right at the other end of the spectrum, about the kind of the language and how strong it is, of warning. And you have to ask, as I have, why such serious language? I think we must realise that having wealth, money, as we do relatively, many of us here, it's never considered a neutral or passive thing within our lives, and certainly as it's been commented, commented on in Proverbs. But I want to make sure we, don't, we see it's not all negative. It's not all negative. Let's um, have a look then as we begin. Uh, Proverbs 10. If you've got it open, that'd be great. It's the beginning of that kind of second section of the book of Proverbs. I want us to begin to understand the power of money. Well, a little bit of a book plug here as well. It's a great book. Um, one, Ash's book on money is just fantastic. Um, so buy that on Amazon. It's only about ranked four million. Uh, so it's doing really, really well. It's, it's a fantastic book. Um, so that's one place to go. The one I've done a lot of work on this week is... Um, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, and I'll give you um, a link to that. It's quite a scholarly book, but it's, it, some of this comes really from, from there. It's very, very helpful uh, in regard to this. So let's look at Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10, verse 4. Firstly, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Verse 5. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during a harvest is a disgraceful son. And then you get this shocker in verse 22. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth. And he adds no trouble to it. I showed last week that woven into the kind of fabric of society, uh, into in creation and ourselves, um, there is an order that God has placed there as part of his creation. Therefore, we can observe wise patterns for living. There are sometimes exceptions to that. And Proverbs is clear on those exceptions, especially in the second half. But wise patterns emerge for life. So, as we see in verse 4 and 5 there, if you put the hours in, if you, get the work, if you work hard, if you're diligent, if you show ingenuity, it will bring wealth. It's clear. It's the pattern that we see. It doesn't quantify the wealth, but you will grow in your wealth. And that is the pattern in this world that we know. Of course, there are exceptions, but that is the pattern. And the surprise comes, though, in verse 22, where we see that God is seemingly positive about wealth as it comes with his blessing. So the material world and, and the benefits of caring for it responsibility, uh, are our responsibility. And as, as we work in the world, uh, we create wealth from that work. And these things are not things that God disapproves of. 
We see here it comes as, as part of his blessing. God is not silent on these things. He's saying, it's okay to have wealth. It comes as part of working hard. And we, that is, those who are more wealthy than most, are not to despise our wealth or be ashamed of it. We can enjoy the blessings that come from that wealth in the creation that we're part of, but we also must be aware of the responsibilities that come with that wealth. And therefore, the power of money uh, is positive in this regard, in the created order, allows us to enjoy, but we must not ignore the responsibilities that we all have with the wealth that God has so kindly given. But the power of money can be dangerous. And here's where we need to turn a little bit the other way. Go to, through to uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, the Lord abhors uh, dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. The picture here is of a, uh, I guess a marketplace, isn't it? Of uh, someone selling a product, a grain maybe, and there they are. Uh, they, they change the scales, they change the weights. You know, you're thinking you're buying a kilogram of rice and actually they whittle it down. It says a kilogram on it, but it's 900 grams. And they're selling you short. They're making a bigger profit. They're dishonest. And money is dangerous in the fact that it can make us dishonest. It has the power to do so. It corrupts, if you like, in that way. And the proverb here is speaking of a danger that money has. It can sneak up on us in this way. We must not be naive. Money has that kind of power. Now, you're all thinking, well, I don't have any weighing scales at work. You know, I'm not in that kind of business. You know, I can't do that. And let me just encourage you to think, you know, what is the application for you today? You know, if you're selling something, if you're in the business, in the business world, if you're selling something, if you're working with clients... Now, the dishonesty is the key here, isn't it? It's the motivation of the heart. That's what money is corrupting here. Uh, We need to be thinking, what are we disclosing? What are we keeping from someone that they ought to know if they're going to go into business with us? It's that kind of dishonesty that the Lord abhors here. And if you are withholding information, if you're withholding details about what you're selling, what you're going about in business on purpose, and you know that customer, you know that person would love, would benefit from that information, you have to be careful. You're not dishonest with them. Money may have corrupted you in that way. So, secondly, money has the power to nourish self-importance. Let's flip forward to verse 26 of chapter 11. People curse a man who hoards grain, but blessing crowns him who is willing to sell. Now, the situation here... There's some kind of food shortage, possibly a famine, but someone has within that situation lots of grain. Now, they don't have to do anything illegal. And all your economists here, you're going, well, supply and demand say, you know, supply is low and demand is high. What's going to happen? The prices are going to rise. This is great. There's nothing illegal this guy's doing here. This is just good Keynesian economics, isn't it? But notice, such self-absorbed practices are understood as cursed power of money can drive someone to see others starve because their personal profit margins are going up. Now let's look at that word cursed. It's not light, is it? Cursed is a, uh, well, it describes a, a, a disintegration, a demise of someone in every area of their life, personal, social, spiritual. And this is what people think of those 
who act in this way, and this is what God thinks of people who act in this way. Again, how does this apply? Because again, we're not in that situation, withholding grade and so on. But I guess it applies to those of us who kind of go into business for one thing and one thing alone. Or work for one thing and one thing alone. Money. Profit. Now look at the righteous by contrast. They're willing to forgo the profit for the sake of the community in which they live. And I guess, this is why I guess I've not been blessed with lots of money. Because I pray for those, who, those of you guys here who are blessed with lots of money. And my friends who are blessed with lots of money. I long for people to have that who bless others. Who give to others, who build up communities, who, who restore lives, who make the gospel known by supporting gospel ministries. They're the kind of people who should be blessed with the money. Let me, again, practically, you're, many of us are thinking, well, I'm not in that situation. I'm not, you know, some great, you know, lots of money. But if you have like two job offers at some point in your life, you're blessed with that. The question is, you know, what are the considerations you're going to make when choosing this job or this job? You know, are you going to be thinking, uh, this one pays X and there's no other considerations I'm going to make? Or are you going to think, well, they pay the same, but this, this company, this group of people, they're, they're really benefiting others. They're, they're not exploiting you know, other people. or you know, They're doing that to build up a community, to, to love people as well. They've got a really good work ethic there. I wonder what your considerations are. Because if your only consideration, the bottom line essentially is wealth, money. I think you have to be fairly careful. Um, I've nicked this um, from a book that many of you read, Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And I, I just, it stood out to me, and I mentioned it to a few of you before. Um, but I think it is incredibly striking, for especially some of you guys who work in the city. He mentions a guy called Paul Krugman, who uh, is from Princeton, apparently, and he he wrote in The Economist. And he speaks about executive pay um, against uh, the lowest paid workers of a company. So the top paid to the lowest paid. And And he shows how the differences between that lowest paid, you know, the cleaner in the office to the top man, can be over 100 times difference now. And... um, before World War II, he says that you know, they get five or ten times the difference. And uh, he asked the question, why? Let me just read a little paragraph to you. For a generation after World War II, fear of outrage kept the executive salaries in check. The outrage is gone. The explosion of executive pay represents a social change and a cultural change rather than the purely economic forces of supply and demand. We should think of it not like a market trend, like a rising value of property, but more like the sexual revolution of the 1960s, a relaxation of old strictures, a, a new permissiveness. Except now, the permissiveness, the permissiveness has moved out of the sexual and into the financial. And by the end of the 1990s, the executive motto might have well have been, if it feels good, do it. The individualism, the individualism unleashed in the area of sex has washed into economics. And the problem is that many of us look to you know, the, the bankers and the, the big guys in the city earning all the money they do, and we just think, well, that's just normal. That's totally okay. And in fact, I kind of would like that. But that is the power of money because it nourishes that self-important. Personal financial gain is, has become a kind of a legitimate, ultimate goal in many people's lives, 
even whilst we watch so many struggle around us. Thirdly, chapter 11, verse 4, it distorts priorities. Distorts priorities. Wealth is worthless on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. I think the point here is that money takes our eyes away from the looming horizon of the inevitable day, then we will have to give an account to God for our lives. And what does that do with regard to our finances? Well, I think if you take your eyes off that final end, that reckoning day, it means you're consumed with today and what you can get. And in terms of finances, it leads many of us in just to a, a, a just sequential kind of consumption of what we can get our hands hold, uh, uh, on. And I think we need to be very, very careful. And God's wisdom urges us to realise that end is very worth, is worthless. And what really matters here is, is righteousness, because that is the thing that li- delivers us from death. Righteousness that we can only know through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection. See, wealth takes your eyes away from an eternal prize and focuses it on a temporary prize, sucking us into this life of endless consumption and always wanting more. Have you, have you noticed that? We spend more, so we just think, oh, well, X has got that, so I probably ought to get that as well, and I want more, and because you want more, you've got to work harder for it, and you commit more, and then it's a just endless cycle. Fourthly, Wealth has the power um, to make you proud. Let's flip over to chapter 30. It's one of the most famous verses um, of Proverbs on, uh, regarding money. Chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, it's interesting, who said that? Who said, who is the Lord? Well, many of you know it's Pharaoh, wasn't it, before Moses. He was saying, yeah, I've got all this. Look at this, Moses. I've got these palaces. I've got everything that you can want. Who's the Lord? I don't need him. There's nothing like financial success to make you proud and overconfident, is there? The more successful you are, the more wealthy you have, the more money you have in your bank account, the more you begin to think that you know best in all areas of life. You can go to the doctor and be told that you have uh, you know, incredibly kind of progressive cancer and you need serious medication. And you can leave thinking that you know better and believe that eating just fruit for the next six months will sort you out. That was Steve Jobs, the founder of, the, of Apple. He thought he knew better. And it was only in the last month of his life, the last few days in fact, He finally admitted how foolish he had been and how arrogant he was. Money has the power to make you incredibly proud. You begin to think you know better in every area of life. Don't underestimate the power of money. The the Bible understands both the positive, we've looked at those, but also the dangerous powers of wealth. And the point is, if you are wise, you'll see this. Secondly then, uh, second main point, uh, he also has the wisdom to expose the effects of money. Uh, this, uh, in that book I was mentioned at the beginning that this is a whole chapter and I think it's really helpful that it's called The Fortified City. It's, uh, uh, let me just turn to chapter 10 verse 15. 
And you'll see this picture comes up twice uh, in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 10, verse 15. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. Again then, it happens again in chapter 18. Let me read that to you. Chapter 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. You can sing the song if you know it. The righteous run into it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Two proverbs, both the same picture of the fortified city. And it's picturing money like a fortified city. Now, when Sarah and I got married, we, we lived in York. Beautiful city, a great time there. And York is famous, isn't it, for its walled. It's a walled city. It's very, very near complete. It's one of the only ones left in this country. But what does such a wall do for the inhabitants inside that wall? That's the question we need to think about. What does it provide for those inside? Especially we think in the times that this was written. I think it's important that we see there are two things that a wall provides. The first one's obvious, isn't it? Security. We understand that. We could imagine in the times, you know, People would be worried about wild animals coming in, uh, you know, even like storms and so on, because lots of desert regions and so on, uh, gangs, violent people, uh, all sorts of attacks. Security, it's an obvious thing. But also to live in a fortified city, and I picked up this from the book, it brought significance. Because cities, like they are still today, are places where the significant people go to. You know, the, the people of culture, the people of commerce as well. In the city, you are somebody. Outside of the city wall, you're a kind of nobody. You're uncivilized. That was the way that culture would have viewed it in that time. So the fortified city brings you two things. Wealth brings you two things, the picture is. Significance and security. Wealth is that fortified city in that it can give you that false sense of security and significance. And do you see how God's wisdom, therefore, exposes the effect of wealth in our hearts? Do you feel more important than those around you because you have a little bit more possessions, money? Do you aspire to go to the nicer area? You know, we look down on SW15. I don't know what SW15 is, but, you know, we're in SW18. You know, and we're, we're over here. and we're, You know how it is? Do you look back at your old next door neighbour and sort of go, Phew, I'm now in the Premier League and you're still there? Do you look at those in less desirable places or who take less desirable public transport than you because they can't afford the tube or the train? And do you just view them in a different way? I guess we fool ourselves on a daily basis saying, we need this, we need that, we need that security, we need that significance. If I only had that, I would be more safe, I'd be more secure. This has been a, how can I say, a huge challenge to me. I think more than anything else, money, money offers us significance and security apart from God. And I want to ask, is that true for you? Because... I want to ask of your wealth, of your money, can it really provide the ultimate fortified tower that you need? The righteous, those who trust in God and the salvation offered through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it shows in chapter 30, only they can know the eternal significance. Only they can know the eternal security that he offers. 
And the point here I'd love us to hear is that we need to run to Jesus for our significance. We need to run to Jesus for our security. Material possessions, they're not wrong. Don't hear me in saying that at all. But they can't make us safe. They're not the fortified city that so many people reckon they are. They can't stop death. They're utterly useless in times of struggle and tragedy and heartache. Do you see how God's wisdom exposes the dangerous effects of money? It's so tempting, isn't it? To find our security, to find our safety in our possessions, in our wealth. And we know they never truly satisfy. Last point. Wisdom to honour God with money. If we want to honour God with uh, our money and our wealth, firstly, I, I guess we've just got to be honest, haven't we? Because God's wisdom here is not trifling around. The language is so strong. If we went back to chapter 10, do you remember the Lord abhors, abhors, dishonest scales? We don't even like to hear that word. Why? Because the only time it's used elsewhere is when it's, when it's talking about sexual sin, in fact. See, God is saying that the, that the power of money is such that the effects that it has on our lives are as bad as an abomination like sexual sin. Now, I know that is very difficult to hear. But materialism seems as offensive to God in this proverb than sexual sin. And probably, we could even argue, more dangerous. Why, as I've already said, it's so difficult to spot, isn't it, in our lives? Now, if you're anything like me, as I've been going through this this week, I... I began a process of kind of self-justification, and you may have even started that already. I began, to, I began to start saying things like this to myself, but I need that. I don't say I want it, I just say, I absolutely need it. Or I even take the self-pitying route. You may have started that one already as well. I trust me, I'm not saying this in a kind of pointy finger way, I'm saying, I've been there already this week, and it's painful. You know, I've said things like this to myself. We hardly have anything. Or we can't possibly afford to kind of up our giving because, you know, look at what we have to go through. It's embarrassing, I know. I just want to ask, have you confused needs with wants? And if you have, hear the strength of God's word and God's wisdom It is an abomination, and you are an addict to money and wealth. And like many of us, hands up, we need help. We need God's wisdom to begin honouring God with our money, his money. What can we therefore do? A couple of minutes and a few extraordinary verses. And again, I I have to be honest and put my hands up. I've taken a lot of this from two commentaries which I'm finding particularly helpful. And they're not academic commentaries, and if you wanted to look at them... Uh, Both Derek Kidner's commentary on on Proverbs and Ray Ortland's commentary on Proverbs are incredibly easy to read, very helpful, great for your quiet times. Let me read uh, a couple of verses. Let's go to chapter 11 together. Chapter 11, verse 25. In the words of one elder, I, I hope and pray this will blow your minds. Verse 25, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. 
People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. Now, it's interesting, you can write this down and look at it later. Psalm 112, verse 5, the same principle occurs. Psalm 112, verse 5. And what these guys call this, and it's in many other commentaries as well, they call it simply the scattering principle. Let me show you what it is. They take it from agriculture. What they mean is, the more you scatter, the more you will gather. And if you don't see this, the point again is that you're under the power of money. If you cannot see that the only way to turn your wealth into real riches, to real wealth, is by giving it away then you are blind to the truth of God's wisdom and God's word. Now let's be clear. I want to be really clear here. He's not saying, we're not saying, the Bible's not saying, this proverb is not saying, if you give £100 away, you'll get £200 back. That is what we call the prosperity gospel, and it is, as Paul pointed out, it is a heresy. It is not within God's word. We're not saying that, but if you think about the prosperity gospel just for a second, it's not anything to do with scattering, because the motivation behind the heart of the one who gives 100, expecting to get 200 back, is, is actually the principle of gathering, isn't it? All they want is more. No, what God's wisdom teaches is that the real riches come from scattering our wealth for the benefit of others. That they might be built up, that they might be, their lives might be enriched, most importantly, with the gospel. It's interesting that Paul picks up the same thing in 2 Corinthians 8. I've taught on that passage a number of times over the last few years as we talk about money. It's a bit of a go-to passage, isn't it? Why don't we go there? Because he uses these verses. It's interesting, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Someone call out the ver- uh, page number when we get there. 1162. 1162, thank you very much. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. See, Paul in this passage, you'll know very well, he's trying to get the Corinthian church to give to, um, to the Macedonians, uh, using the example of Macedonians, to help with the relief of the poor. And he doesn't go after them and say, hey, look, uh, I, I really need you to do this. Um, he doesn't go after the hearts with a kind of pitying story or anything like that. He goes to Corinthians verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you. He says, I'm not forcing you by the will that I have as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look what he says. But I want to test, verse 8, the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Why don't you flip over to, here's where the principle comes, chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. See what he's done? It's taken from Proverbs. And then chapter 9, verse 9, as it is written in the Psalm 112, as I mentioned, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Let me conclude with this. This is the point. When Jesus was beaten and flogged and crucified, he was essentially broken, torn, and you might even say, as it does here, scattered. Why? To gather you and me. So we scatter what we have in response to the ultimate scattering. And Paul is saying to our hearts here, unless 
You can look at Jesus, as Paul is commending the Corinthians to do here, unless you can see the cross, that ultimate scattering together, unless you can, your heart has to be melted by that amazing gospel truth, unless you see that, that your ultimate security, the ultimate significance comes from him, unless you can see that Jesus gave up everything, that he valued more you than he did himself, Well, I quote, to the degree to which you have understood that and let that penetrate your life, your heart and your wallet is the degree to which you will break the power of money in your life. And when that begins, what happens? When your heart is melted by the Lord Jesus Christ who is ripped apart, scattered so that we might be gathered, you will want to scatter at that point. You want to see your money helping lives all around our community, all around the world. Yes, in terms of just relief, but mostly in terms of the gospel as well. Because it's that point that you start to get the gathering. You start to get the real wealth as you see the gospel, as you see lives being transformed. And that is true riches. The interesting question is, I guess if you're anything like me, you're, you're now asking the question, but how much? But how much? Is it enough to get to the end of the weekend and just see whatever's left? Of course, we know that the Old Testament rule is that it's called the tithe, and you know, it, it essentially was 10%. But hear the wisdom, lastly at the end, here. Proverbs 11, verse 24. Proverbs 11, verse 24. One man literally scatters or gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Now, the withholding unduly there, it's, it's basically the guy who's saying, look, I'm not going to give as much as I, I, I need to. He's not giving what's required. The requirement was 10%. That's the biblical rule, if you like, for, for generosity. But as we've seen again and again over these three sessions looking at biblical wisdom, wisdom is not just, you know, kind of applying the rules and saying, right, that's enough. I've done it. I've kind of just scraped over the line of what the rule says. It's more than that. You see, with regard to wealth and our money, the tithe is the rule. But as Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 8, the cross is wisdom. And as we look to the cross, we see someone who gave everything who is sacrificial in giving himself to be scattered so that we might gather us as his people for eternity. And you are a fool if you think that you're being wise with your money and you're just getting to the line. If it makes no difference in your life, how you live, what you buy, what you spend your money on, it doesn't change the way you go on holiday or house or clothes or whatever. You're not being sacrificial and you're not being wise. Oh, you may be obeying the rule, but you're not being wise. You haven't brought, essentially, the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, and applied it to your wallet yet. We've got a little bit of time, and I think this is an important juncture that we do this. Um, I want you just for a moment to turn to the person beside you. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's thrown up in the air. 
Look, any points of clarification? Just speak to the people beside you. We've got two or three minutes, and then I'll see if there's anyone who's got any questions. Go for it, just a couple of seconds.